Hello everyone and welcome to That Time When, the comedy history podcast where each week we take you back in time to some strange or unusual event or tale, something that's happened in history that you may not know about. I am your host for this week, Barnaby King, and joining me, as ever, is my lovely co-host, Amelia Edwards. Well, hello there. Hello there. You're wearing a fantastic, uh, yet unseasonal, Christmassy Wonder Woman jumper. It's still January. (laughs) Yeah, it's very cold. We had our first snow yesterday. We did. And our rabbit went out in it, and he did not like it. He did not. (laughs) Too chilly for him. And... Speaking of our rabbit, regular listeners will already know about Lombardi, Mm -hmm. our little bunny who occasionally interrupts our recording because he wants to chew on the cat flap that we have installed so he can go in and out freely. He's a good boy. He's a very good boy, yes. But you and I know that, you know, generally you want to have more than one rabbit. That's true. And Um, we have... Sorry. Oh, I was going to say that the RSPCA recommends that you have two bunnies. Yes. The reason why we're comfortable with only having Lombardi at the moment is simply because um, you work from home most of the time. So he is not lonely. Yeah. And we have been trying to get another rabbit for him. We have. It's surprisingly difficult. Well, between the pandemic and... Well, just more pandemic, I That's guess. That's true. It's a lot uh, of different pandemic things, isn't yeah, it? Every time yeah. lockdown lifts, we try to get another bunny. Yeah. So we've been in touch with people. And I it's surprisingly difficult. And wouldn't there wouldn't it just be great if there was an easier way to get a hold of a rabbit friend for Lombardi? Um Okay. Like what? Well, perhaps we could find a woman who could give birth to a new rabbit. I don't think I'd want that rabbit. <laughs> How dare you? Those poor bunnies. No, I don't want human-spawned bunnies. That sounds creepy. Well, it is pretty creepy, but it is something that happened. No, it's not. <laughs> well... Well, sorry. Okay, that's, that's the end of this episode then. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, goodbye, everyone. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs> no. So this week, I'm going to tell you the story of Mary Toft, a woman in 18th century uh, Britain who is famous for the fact that she gave birth to rabbits, or at least that's how it's kind of portrayed. The truth is a little bit more grim. I'm sure. And I'll tell you right now, obviously, obviously, this was a hoax. This was not real. Humans cannot give birth to to rabbits. Thank God. (laughs) I was thinking for a moment this was too much like the beginning of Stuart Little. No. Yeah, no, no, no. This is this is nothing like that. This is the story like she is famous for this being a medical hoax. Okay. Um, but there's a lot of interesting sort of context around it. And there's some added stuff which I'm gonna talk about in the latter half of this episode, uh, which was brought to light for me by Professor Karen Harvey, who wrote a paper about Mary Toft. Okay. And I believe she's actually written a book about her as well. I, I think this is like her field of expertise so thank you to professor karen harvey but it does make the story take a really dark turn so we'll start off with the lighter stuff i think i'll let you know when we're getting to the darker side of it and hey if you just want this to be a happy little story you can stop there (laughs) so mary dana as she was originally known was born circa 1701 Mm. Uh, Later on, she married Joshua Toft, who was a journeyman clothier. 
and journeyman for those who don't really know it's a sort of like if you are some sort of craftsman or Mm -hmm. artisan if you're a journeyman you've kind of got your tools you wander around you don't really have a place that like your own business but you'll go to places and do work for people it used to be like the typical thing to do when you'd finished an apprenticeship yeah. would be you'd become a journeyman and then eventually you get high enough in your guild that you get to settle down and become a master. Yeah. So we're talking about people who are members of the lower classes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mary herself was a servant um, and she worked in a hop garden. Okay, cool. Uh, she was also known to be illiterate. This is something that comes into play a little bit later on. Okay. But we're talking about someone who is definitely disadvantaged yeah. at this sort of time. But this is a time of a lot of change happening in Britain, which I think you'll be well aware of. Yeah, we talked on the last episode we did about how much happened in the 1700s. Exactly, yeah. And this is time sort of time of the enlightenment mm-hmm. uh, industrial revolution is kind not really but you know it's, it's it's on its way it's on its way i think we're already into the agricultural revolution yeah. that kind of predates the industrial revolution yeah. but had to happen for industrial revolution to work out and also printing presses oh yeah yeah which becomes important because it means that newspapers become a thing True. Um, I take it you're thinking steam-powered printing press yes. rather than the invention of the printing press by William Caxton. No, 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 not talking about 13, that. 1390, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But newspapers were a really big thing in Britain. Oh, they were so important. Yeah. By the time uh, in 1777 that France had its first newspaper, London had 300. Oh my gosh, calm <laughs> down, guys. Yeah, the Swiss writer, uh, César François de Saussure. Nice name. Great name. He described the British as great newsmongers mm-hmm. and observed that British workers would frequently visit coffee houses just so that they could read the latest newspapers and catch up with all the stories and gossip and everything like that. Wonderful. And it kind of makes sense because this is also the era that sees kind of traveling freak shows, curiosities yeah. and gimmicks being really popular. I mean, we've talked about Daniel Lambert, for instance, yep. who um, showed himself off. And it's that sort of person, this was an era where that was becoming like a really big thing. Okay, so we've got all these London people who are apparently making enough money that they can amuse themselves um, by doing things like buying newspapers and coffee and Mm. uh, going to see people. Like I don't think they were buying coffee. I think they were just going in for the newspapers. (laughs) It's a bit like going in for the free Wi-Fi nowadays. I mean... Well, not nowadays, but you know, in the normal times. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I do see what you mean, but coffee houses were somewhere that people did have to sit and drink coffee. Mm. I think they wouldn't just let you wander about. Yeah, probably. People yeah. were rough sorts. <laughs> but you can tell that people are kind of like, they are into their news, their gossip stories, yeah. all their tabloid journalism. Wonderful. And this is kind of why Mary Toft became as popular or as well known as she did. Okay. Because she was one of these curiosities. Mm -hmm. Uh, Her story was published in October of 1726. And it became so widely spread that it even reached the court of King George I. Oh my gosh, okay. So Mary was living in Godalming. Mm -hmm. 
which for those who don't know is an area in the county of Surrey which is fairly near London um, nowadays it's very well off uh, at the time I think it probably was too it was you know historically part of the wool trade yay which... I have strong feelings about <laughs> the wool trade I haven't brought these into no, the podcast no I just realised shocking I realised that as I said it because I said it because we, we just we say we say it casually to each other because yeah. we're that much of a nerd um, that we'll just casually mention historic wool trade but yeah i think this is the first time we've talked about it i was planning on doing something about francis of assisi and when i do i'm gonna get full into my nerdiness about the wool trade brilliant you guys don't know how important the (laughs) wool trade was but it was everything so yeah like uh surrey and guildford in particular which is kind of you could almost call it the capital of the county yeah yeah um they they were quite wealthy Mm mm-hmm um, Godalming is a much smaller place, fairly nearby to Guildford. Yeah. And this is where Mary was living. And in September, she unfortunately had a miscarriage. Okay. But nevertheless, it was noted that she still appeared pregnant. Okay. This isn't actually that unusual. No. Um, but it was something that was noted at the time. Okay. Especially because sometime later she went into labour again. Okay. And this time she delivered what was described as parts of an animal. There was a doctor who described the sort of amalgam that she produced as a liverless cat. Okay. Okay, so hold up for one second. Yeah. Because you said this gets dark. Yeah. Is this now? No. Is it now this gets dark? No, no, no. This is, this is surprisingly, this is still like a good humoured part of it. Great. Okay, <laughs> so there were birth defects that might produce something very strange? Possibly, but these were pieces oh like even though she's described as the woman who gave birth to rabbits yeah she only in a few instances is said to have given birth to whole rabbits okay and they were dead i'll tell you that now okay mostly it was bits and pieces of animals right this continued over like ensuing weeks and months even she continued to give birth to bits and pieces of animals and this was most notably rabbits okay which is why she's kind of known as the woman who gave birth to rabbits you're looking at me with horror that is a horror story i mean it is it is if we imagine that this wasn't a hoax yeah perpetrated by her yeah imagine if you or like imagine if somebody did keep giving birth to bits of animal that would be horrific yeah and we'll get to quite how horrific this is later on okay great her story, though, was confirmed by her mother-in-law, Anne Toft, who was a witness to the birth and also a midwife. Okay. But she was an unofficial midwife. She wasn't recorded in the parish records as sort of being a licensed midwife, as right. it were. She was an unofficial one who helped out the sort of the poorer people in the area. Okay. And she had experience because she'd had 12 children over 23 years. Oh my so... God, she's Nanny Og from Terry Pratchett. <laughs> she kind of is, yeah. Yeah. So Anne, being like, you know, some sort of miracle happening here, even if it's a bit of a gross one, sent bits of flesh to a doctor and midwife in uh, Guildford. Right. A man by the name of John Howard. Who opened up and was like, oh my God, what is this? (laughs) Well, yes, and he was initially quite sceptical about this whole story. (laughs) 
But he was willing to investigate and he journeyed to Godalming. Okay. He witnessed the births. Okay. And basically was like, yeah, this is absolutely true. This woman is giving birth to animal parts. Oh my God. And so he started sending letters left, right and center about these miraculous births to various doctors and to the court of the king. Okay. Well, that makes sense. You'd be like, okay, this is wild. Yeah. (laughs) I've never heard of this happening before. Hey, guys, does anyone know what to do? (laughs) I am out of my depth here. Like, I guess... We're saying this was kind of the beginning of the Enlightenment. Yeah. This is before even Frankenstein was written. Mm. Wild scientific discoveries were happening all the time. Oh, yeah. So I guess if you're in Godalming, you're not exactly at the center of everything. Like, granted, you're not too far out, Mm. but perhaps there's something that happens to women that you just don't know about. Like, Well, there is... Part of the reason that this was such a big story was because of an idea at the time which was being suggested by the medical profession, which is known as maternal impression. Okay. Maternal impression is basically this idea that strong emotional states in pregnant women, and particularly like desires and longings, Mm -hmm. can have an effect on the fetus. Okay. So this is used sometimes to explain mental illness at the time. So a woman who is particularly sad when pregnant, for example, will Mm -hmm. probably have a depressed child. And you kind of, because nowadays we see that there are genetic links in mental illness, you kind of got a bit of a... um, uh, not self-fulfilling prophecy, but you know. Yeah, well, you can you can establish a causal link, yes. but have it for the wrong reasons. Exactly. So exactly. you've got this woman who suffers from depression. Mm-hmm. Her child grows up to suffer from depression, and you go, "Well, she was really sad when she was yeah. pregnant." So yeah, yeah. I guess that makes sense because people could see that, for example women who exerted themselves way too much when they were Mm. pregnant were probably more likely to miscarry and things like that. So they were probably just working off kind of like gradual observations on that kind of thing. But they also expanded this further to include things like what they would call birth defects. Mm. Um, And Mary said that when she was five weeks pregnant, Mm -hmm. she was in a field and she was startled when a rabbit ran by her. Okay. And she developed a bit of a longing for rabbits. I I can't really tell if she just wants to like have one as a cute, adorable pet yeah. or to eat it. Okay. Uh, it's a bit unsure. Um, at the time, she would not have eaten rabbit very often. Yeah. Okay. Um, because she's poor. And at the time, rabbit was apparently somewhat reserved for wealthier people. That makes sense. Um, as you know, I did once attend a his, uh, history lecture yes, on you did. the history of rabbits. Yes. Um, and presumably the rabbits would mostly have been owned by the people on whose land they live. Exactly. Which means that anyone who's poor who has rabbit is a poacher. Yeah. But doctors at the time kind of saw the story of Mary Toft as proof of maternal impression. Okay. So she developed this longing for rabbits. Yep. And as such, she later was giving birth to bits of rabbits. Okay, I'm just going to pause you there because as far as I'm aware, Mm -hmm. women who are pregnant tend to get weird and mysterious cravings a fair amount or anti-cravings. For example, our friend Adele, shout out to Adele, who's awesome, um, is currently pregnant Mm -hmm. and didn't want to drink tea for months and she loves tea it's her yeah. favorite thing well but presumably 
if, say, one got a craving for coal or to lick nails, which I think is a thing mm. that people sometimes get when they're pregnant, they aren't giving birth to coals or nails. <laughs> no, I think it's more the fact that this is in accompaniment with having been startled by a rabbit. Okay. This kind of create this situation creates the longing that's how they're kind of seeing it they don't see it as a craving but as because her mind like she sees the rabbit wants the rabbit and that becomes like part of her mind basically okay now i'm okay so i'm finding this quite interesting because often the whole startled by a rabbit thing comes Mm -hmm. up in witch trials as well there is quite a lot of crossover between this story Mm -hmm. and witch trials and there's only about what 150 200 years between the ends of the witch trials and this story happening yeah so maybe there is still a kind of subconscious thing going on in the community about being startled by a rabbit when you're in a vulnerable state is Mm. a really bad thing yeah i i would yeah i i hadn't thought of that but yeah i completely agree with Mm. that that sounds like it could be accurate okay but anyway back to the main story itself okay henry davenant a member of the king's court was sent to investigate And he wrote letters to the king's surgeon, who is a Swiss doctor by the name of Nathaniel St. Andre. Why does everyone have such good names today? I know, right? Nathaniel St. Andre. Yes. St. Andre? St. Andre? I don't know. Uh, Yeah. Um, Nathaniel St. Andre received a lot of letters from various doctors. Uh, We have here a letter that John Howard, the Guildford doctor, wrote. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is, sir, since I wrote to you, I have taken or delivered the poor woman of three more rabbits. All three half grown, one of them a dun rabbit. The last leaped 23 hours in the uterus before it died. As soon as the 11th rabbit was taken away, up leaped the 12th rabbit, which is now leaping. If you have any curious person that is pleased to come post, may see another leap in her uterus and shall take it from her if he pleases, which will be a great satisfaction to the curious. If she had been with child, she has but ten days more to go, so I do not know how many rabbits may be behind. I have brought the woman to Guildford for better convenience. I am, sir, your humble servant, John Howard. Wait, when he's talking about the rabbits leaping, is he suggesting that they're kind of like kicking in her her womb, like when you can feel babies do that? He is, yes. What? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, of course... Everyone becomes really interested. Yeah. Including the king. Yeah. And he sends Nathaniel St. Andre and the secretary to the Prince of Wales, Stephen Molyneux, mm-hmm. to investigate. And while they were there, they weren't actually present, but while they were around, Mary Toff delivered a rabbit torso. Okay. And St. Andre used this opportunity to run some tests of his own. Right. He assessed whether or not the rabbit had ever breathed. Okay. And he did this by floating the lungs in water because if the lungs had never inhaled, then they wouldn't contain any sort of pockets of air and would sink. That's fascinating. Yeah. That's a wild way of thinking I would never have thought of. I know, right? But he did kind of demonstrate that this rabbit had breathed. Okay. Despite this, he still seemed convinced that this was true. And his conclusion was that Mary was indeed delivering rabbits and Mm -hmm. that they were growing in her fallopian tubes. I don't know why he thought this. Oh, man. People had no idea of what was going on. They really didn't. They really didn't. I don't know about you, but whenever I deliver myself of parts of rabbit, (laughs) 
it's effectively an ectopic pregnancy. Right? Like, this just kind of goes to show how mad the medical profession was in the 18th century. We've come a long way. We have indeed. So in John Howard's letter... Uh, you saw that he said that he'd moved Mary to Guildford yeah. for better convenience. Yeah, all right. She then gets moved to London for even more convenience of the interested doctors. Sure. And a lot of people start getting behind her story. Okay. There were some who were sceptical, thank God. Good. <laughs> and they decided to sort of perform their own investigations uh, this included a man by the name of a doctor by the name of Syriacus Arlers. Uh, okay, how do you spell that? C y r i a c u s. Okay. And surname Arlers A H L E R S. It's a great name. Is he like? I don't know. German or something? I don't know. I suspect he was German. So. Oh no! Yes, he was. He was German. There yes. we go. Yeah. So I'd assume that the reason for the interesting first name is because people used to still give themselves Latin names. Yeah. In order to be able to publish more widely. Yeah. He, he. Yes, he was a German doctor because that was actually somewhat important later on. Uh, he was a surgeon, mm. and he feigned belief in the story in order to get close to Mary. Clever man. So that he could casually ask for specimens to dissect. Yeah, yeah. And he found that the rabbits had previously eaten straw and grain. And he was like, woman, are you putting straw and grain into your uterus? (laughs) (laughs) Or even worse, your fallopian tubes? (laughs) Yeah, that's... Grim. Yeah. <laughs> uh, despite this, he was like, yo, these rabbits clearly were hopping about before they were inside Mary. Okay. But supporters of Mary basically spread a load of rumors and stories to discredit him before he could publish anything. Okay. So there were definitely people who, if they didn't know it was a hoax, mm. they were definitely concerned about people discrediting them okay but in december of the same year 1726 this all happens only over a few months it's mad great thomas onslow the second baron onslow began his own investigation and he's not someone who's easily silenced okay so why is this baron doing an investigation what are his credentials uh he's bored okay cool and he's a baron okay so we're we're into the um gentleman scientist we are yes okay well he doesn't really perform much in the way of science he actually does some proper detective work oh okay yeah oh my god he's batman he kind of is yes and he discovers that mary tuff's husband in recent months, has been buying an awful lot of young rabbits. Oh, no, really? Yes. (laughs) Okay. And he's basically immediately like, so this is a hoax, right? Yeah. And uh, basically says he's ready to expose Mary as a fraud. Okay. On the very same day he says he's going to do this, a hospital porter confesses that he has been bribed by Mary's sister-in-law to bring rabbits to her while she was in isolation. What? They, the family claimed this was because Mary wanted to eat rabbit. You know, she still has that longing. Okay. But the doctors don't believe. They're pretty pissed off. Yeah. They, because you wouldn't be smuggling the rabbit in. You'd be like, could I have this yeah, as exactly. food? 
They get angry, get a bit threatening to perform surgery on her Ooh. to like, we'll we'll put this to bed once and for all. Of course. And at that point, Mary confesses that the whole thing is a hoax. Because you don't want people doing surgery on you yeah. in the 1700s. Yeah. So the story became really even more popular okay. because the medical profession was not hugely respected at the time. Okay. In particular, because there were a lot of German doctors and surgeons coming over and joining the king's court and English exceptionalism kind of strikes again and people are a bit like, what do these German doctors know? Yeah, we have to point out at this point that um, George I was German, which is the reason why he's got so many German physicians coming over. Yeah. Um, But yeah, it must have been a bit tense. It was. And many doctors became laughing stocks. Yeah. Uh, there are prints and cartoons depicting things like there, there's one where uh, Mary Toft kind of has a sort of almost Virgin Mary appearance. Okay. And there are lots of very credulous doctors sort of looking <laughs> at her amazed like it's the birth of Christ. And there are rabbits hopping around the room. That sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. So as I said, this was putting to bed some of the things like maternal impression. Yeah, okay. Now, here's the point where the story gets a bit dark because Professor Karen Harvey points out that really this story, it barely features Mary Toft, really. That's true. She is the central figure, but she doesn't really have a voice in the story. Yeah, she's being operated on by doctors who are moving her about. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Professor Karen Harvey kind of wanted to switch this up and get an idea of Mary Toft as an individual. Cool. And her own motivations behind it. Because the sort of accepted version is, you know, she wanted fame, she Mm. wanted money, so she did this hoax. Right. But there does seem to be more to it than that. The source we have for Mary's role in this this whole hoax comes from three confessions she gave. Okay. There are transcripts of them, mm-hmm. and there are multiple versions, because there are versions that are kind of verbatim, so it's like actually what she says at the time, mm. and then there are versions which are kind of cleaned up and sent to the courts, yeah. because she was arrested for fraud, basically. Yeah, okay. And... Even though the sort of transcription style is different from today, uh, it can be translated. Okay. So what we kind of have first is that the interrogation of Mary was brutal. Really? It took place in a bridewell. Oh, God. So it was basically in a prison. Yeah. She had very high-ranking men, sometimes up to 10 of them in her small cell at at a time, basically shouting at her. And when I say, like, they threatened to perform surgery, they basically just threatened to torture her. Yeah. Yeah. It is grim. I have actually um, been to look at the size of cells in a bridewell. Yeah. Um, You can go to the Norwich Bridewell Museum in better times. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And they have a like completely intact version of one of their original cells, oh, which is very okay. cool. I haven't actually been to it. So. No, it is well worth going. We're going to go yeah. when it opens back up. Um, but basically, to give you an idea of the size of the cell, if you imagine like the size of your average public toilet um, 
cubicle. Oh, wow. It's about that. Like, it's tiny. Yeah. Like, a little bit extra, maybe, but that's kind of the length of it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's very, very small. There's enough room in it for a bed and, like, a pan, and that's about it. So this is a very cramped space with some yeah. very high-ranking people. And as we pointed out, like, Mary is... She's vulnerable. She's very vulnerable. She's exactly like the people that we talked about being in Bridewells before in our episode yeah. about Dave, uh, Daniel Lambert. Yeah. So there are a few things that we can kind of get from the confession. And this is part of the reason that it's these are really important sources because I mentioned before Mary was illiterate. Mm-hmm. So it's not like she has sort of diaries or anything no. that, where she's talking about this. This is really her main voice in the story. Yeah. So when we look over the three confessions, uh, Professor Karen Harvey applies some analysis to them to kind mm-hmm. of determine like, which bits are true, which bits are likely made up, or like what sort of emotional state she was in at the time. Yeah. Uh, it's actually really interesting. Like um, she uses a technique by modern forensic psychologists in analysis of witness statements uh, called criteria-based content analysis. Okay. And using this, the, she concludes that Mary Toff's confessions meet the criteria for being statements of memory, not statements of fantasy. Okay. And this is important because Mary basically says, this was not my idea. Okay. She attributes it to basically one of two individuals. In the first story, mm-hmm. she talks about a knife grinder's wife. Okay. Who basically threatened to put her up to the whole business. Right. And in the second and third confessions, basically reveals that it was her mother-in-law, Anne Toft, who had this whole idea. Yeah. And kind of threatened Mary to go through with it. Okay. And this is... I mean, it's interesting for a couple of reasons. Firstly, her initial sort of idea of this knife grinder's wife... Mm -hmm. Like, at the time, you can kind of see that this is a person who is scary. Yes. Like... She's got access to a lot of knives. Exactly, exactly. And uh, Professor Harvey kind of infers from this that Mary is afraid of her mother-in-law. Yeah. A mother-in-law who wields a lot of social power in the community and who may have a bit of, not so much a grudge, but a bit of animosity towards mary yeah because mary has married into this toft family Mm -hmm. we know that Anne toft very fertile has 12 children yeah mary had one son and it had by the time we get to this story i believe it's her third miscarriage oh my god okay so she's not really standing up to the family no. traditions and having lots of kids. And this is a time when very much, like, if you are in a large family, that is important. Yeah. It is important that you continue the bloodline. And Anne basically sees Mary as not being up to snuff. Yeah. So Mary has her miscarriage. And it's really tragic, actually. Like, the way she describes it. We it basically looks like she was traumatized by her third miscarriage because it was so violent. Yeah. Yeah. And during this time, it seems to be suggested that Anne Toft had these bits of animal put into her. Okay. So that Mary would give birth to it, believe that 
this has happened. Yeah. Tell the story. And then Antoft comes to her later on and is like, this is all made up and I will expose you right. if you don't continue along with this hoax. Oh, how horrible. Yeah. Oh, right? God. Okay. So we've got Antoft, who seems to be the mastermind of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Mary does also point the finger at John Howard, the doctor as well, who okay. basically says that he is Anne's kind of partner in this. Yeah. Whether or not he is like fully aware of the facts or if he's just like partly aware of it, maybe he's told like, hey, this happened once and we're going to make it seem like it's continuing Yeah. so that we can like get more... Publicity. Publicity. Yeah. Don't really know, but Mary definitely seems to believe that John Howard is involved in this whole hoax. I could imagine feeling that way if... So she's in a vulnerable position generally. Yeah. And then this doctor has come along and said, I'll take care of you and keeps moving her about. Yeah. And I could imagine if she's the kind of person who might be a little easily frightened of something, then she might have been very easily pushed about by this guy and felt like he had too much control over her life. Well, it does seem to be that in in the transcriptions of Mary's words, she does seem to have undergone trauma at various points. Okay. There is a suggestion uh, Professor Harvey makes that the appearance of the knife grinder's wife mm. is actually kind of a metaphor for sexual assault okay because mary is also someone who is she expresses disgust and horror at being touched by people oh no and is touched by this knife grinder's wife yeah and there are a few other things like about handles of knives being very phallic you don't i don't don't need to go further no 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 so it seems that mary was a victim in so many ways. Yeah. And it may well be that her continuing with this hoax is not only because, you know, she's being blackmailed, but also because this kind of gives her a voice and a bit of strength. Like, yeah. this is this is now, like, her story and she can talk about her pain, which she does at a great length mm. in the confession. And she talks about how she would feign pain to elicit sympathy from doctors, but also really goes into detail about how horrible this whole experience was. Yeah. And her previous miscarriages as well. And this is kind of important because, like, she doesn't need to talk about that. Like, that's not relevant to the case at all. But she wants people to know, you know, this is horrific and no one talks about it. Yeah. Actually, that's a really important point because I expect, I suspect there probably wasn't there probably was a lot of taboo around miscarriages. Yeah. I know that from reading um, other women's experiences that it is still considered pretty taboo. Yeah. And imagine taking that and putting that in the 1700s. Mm. It must have been really something you didn't want to talk about, especially when all of the blame for this would be put on the mother and not really fate so much. Absolutely. And this is also a time where you're going to have, like, at a birthbed mm-hmm. you've got a lot of women around you yeah and many of them are basically going to be judging you yeah like it's awful like mary continues to talk about how like early in her miscarriage she was offered support and it was all nice and mm-hmm. then otherwise people showed no sympathy or concern and it just kind of like faded really quickly yeah and it's really horrific like 
I, I realize at this point this episode has become way less funny because this the, is the, just the saddest story we've it's ever covered. So sa- it's so sad, and it's I I kind of wanted to approach this story from this direction because typically the way this story is told is very light-hearted, and it's yeah. you know. Oh, she's giving birth to bunnies. Look at how these doctors don't, like are believing her. Oh yeah. my god, it's a hoax all along. She's a mad, tricky woman yeah. who's making things up for for attention. And instead, like Professor Harvey, like kind of talks about how this was awful, yeah, and painful, and like it doesn't sound to me like this was anything of Mary Toft's like design or really really her consent yeah like it's just tragic i think it's probably important that we've done this story though yeah because often i think when we talk about female characters from history we want to talk about the fact that there is this idea that women throughout time are just downtrodden and don't get to do anything yeah and we like to talk about all these interesting people who have done a lot Mm -hmm. but every once in a while we do have to balance it out by the fact that the majority of people won't have had a great time no. in history. Um, and you do end up with people like Mary Toft and like uh, Robert Burns's wife, who yeah. we talked about the other time, who yeah. like gets a little bit downtrodden, perhaps. Yeah. Although, granted, Robert Burns's wife didn't seem to mind the way that he behaved. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm kind of... Part of me would like to kind of make, like, go back to being really, like, positive about this. But when I was reading about it and researching it, it was getting me down. And now that I'm talking about it, it's getting me down even more. You are looking heartbroken. I'm I'm feeling heartbroken. I think it's kind of like actually saying it out loud kind of as like, wow, that really solidifies how awful this was. And... I wanted to do this story because I knew the sort of lighthearted version. I thought, you know, oh, this will be really fun. Yep. I saw Professor Harvey's paper and I was like, oh, this is an interesting take. Like I didn't, before I'd read the whole thing, it was like, hey, I'm going to focus on Mary herself and her own experience rather than just the story of the hoax and the doctors and the men around her, basically. Yeah. And then, yeah, you read on and it's just like, wow, this is some really bad abuse going on here. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know how to go back to making this funny. (laughs) Okay, I think that what we have to do is call an end to the story itself Mm. to say thank you all so much for listening. Um, I will try and do a more lighthearted <laughs> yeah. one next time. Yeah, I round. promise my next one will be lighthearted. Wow, this has really got to me. <laughs> it really has. Um, I think what we need to do is we'll say goodbye to our listeners <laughs> and then we can go and give Lombardi a hug so you can I feel better. I think so, yes. All right, right so, down here next to me. Hey, what's boy. What's a good boy? So thank you so much for listening. If you want to follow us, you can do so on our Twitter at that time when four or you can email us any suggestions at ttwpod at gmail.com yes and email if you would like us to steer away from such sad (laughs) stories in the future tell us if you want to have less of a bummer time I feel so guilty now. It's fine, it's fine. <laughs> I'm going to go, keep going through the yeah, thing. Keep Thank going. you to Kevin MacLeod for the theme song and any other music Barnaby puts into this episode. <laughs> and once again, thank you for listening. Hopefully you'll have found it interesting, if a bit sad, and we'll come back with something a little bit chirpier next week. Yeah, Goodbye. less comedy this week, comedy next week. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>